Hey all, Raghav here again. So in our interview last week with Dr. Waitzkin, he actually started that conversation by turning the table and interviewing Jonas and Brendan for like 45 minutes. Um, was a pretty boss move. We cut that piece out and are going to offer it here as a bonus episode and an opportunity to learn a little bit more about our intrepid young hosts. Um, I think they both squirm with a reasonable amount of grace and dignity. Thanks for tuning in all. Welcome to Social Medicine On Air, a podcast where we explore the vibrant world of social medicine. We learn through conversations with healthcare practitioners, researchers, and activists who are working to create a more just and healthy world. So I was concerned, like, for someone like you who work on a global perspective, like here in the U.S., um, in South Korea, now we are based, uh, what could be your your the greatest challenge you may see for, for the next generation trying to uh, get involved also? Actually, I uh, I asked you before we started for permission. It's kind of a curveball. I actually <laughs> love, ba- I love baseball. I was actually, a, I guess I could share, I was an all-star baseball player uh, in Little League. Mm. And then I stopped growing at age 12. So it was kind of downhill after that, but I actually did letter in baseball and played it in college as well. So the curveball is, as I asked before we started, I'd actually like to interview interview you guys for a couple of minutes because uh, because actually my answer to Jonas's question has to do with you and actually uh, your. You're very inspiring people, and there are wonderful young comrades who actually give me tremendous hope these days, including yourself. So I'd actually like to ask you to say a few more words about yourselves, because to my knowledge, that hasn't appeared on the interviews yet. No, we've done a good job of hiding behind the microphone. Okay, I will say like I was born in Haiti. I I was born the, the same year a dictature end ended um, in Haiti. So that's mean the perspective, uh, the perception of my parents about struggle or life is a little bit different for me because they grew up under a dictature. They grew up under a authoritarian government. So I was born in the same year um, that dictatorship um, ended. And my parents didn't have the opportunity to finish uh, elementary school. My dad only have one year school. My mom have uh, had four. Uh, but both of them love education and they always encourage me to keep moving forward. So by the time I finished middle school, they couldn't pay my education anymore because in Haiti, uh, school is private. If I have the numbers in mind, I will say um, 82 to 82. 82 to 88 percent of the school in Haiti are private. So if you can't pay, if you can't afford it, you will not finish. And that's one of the reasons my parents couldn't um, go to school. Uh, but my parents pushed me. So by the time we finished middle school, they couldn't pay. But I find my way um, to compete for a scholarship and get uh, into public school for to finish high school. And then I end up going into uh, winning um, a contest to go to medical school in Haiti. I studied there 
and then the earthquake happened so i survived the earthquake and then i moved to mexico um my i was in a seven year program in haiti so on my fourth year the earthquake happened but when i moved to mexico i uh, restart all over um because i had that desire i couldn't do anything more than being a doctor um so i finished medical school in mexico i spent um Actually, I spent five years with them, five years and a half, and they sent me to, in France, where I spent um, six, five months. I returned, and then I managed a way to present the USMLE exam, and I came to the US. I did a master in public health first, in health system and policy. I had the chance to go to Greece to see the... Um, the refugee crisis, because when I moved to Mexico, I was a refugee myself. Um, so I had a chance to, to see uh, on the other side what, what it could be to be to be a um, to be a refugee. And then after that, I, I, I match at Boston University, Boston Medical Center, where and I'm trying to enjoy it because I'm in a hospital where there's a lot of Spanish speaking patient, Haitian queer speaking, uh, speaking patient, and we take care of the low income community in Boston. We are the safety net hospital. So basically, this is me, I would say. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. By the way, are you talking about Boston City? Yeah, Boston City. The, the, the ex-Boston City. Yeah. Great. I've spent a lot of time at that institution. So. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Very yeah. inspirational. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, and about myself... Um, you know, I, I kind of I kind of come from the other side of the world in, in some ways. Um, my I think my interest in medicine developed very young. Actually, both my parents are in medicine. Um, my mom is a psychiatrist at the county hospital um, in Minneapolis, and my dad is a family practice doc. And so I remember going on house calls with him when I was growing up. Uh, so that you know, kind of coming into um, almost medicine as something that I was exposed to very early on. Uh, my parents were big inspirations for me and just seeing the way that they took care of their patients, uh, the way that they loved their jobs. You know, my dad would come home often and say, I, I just feel like the luckiest person in the world and I feel like I just have the best job in the world um, and the chance to take care of people and like accompany people every day. And so I think that made a big impression on me. Um, and really kind of influenced my decision to pursue medicine. But I think also as I, you know, went through college um, and then finally into medical school, I also had a sense of dissatisfaction to the extent that what I felt like I was learning in medical school, like didn't really link up with the world around me or like the greater problems. Like there was, there was some sort of gulf between uh, what we were learning in, in medical school and the things that were making our patients sick. And, you know, the, the example that I always think back about is that, you know, the American life expectancy has gone down for three years in a row, um, maybe four now. And I don't think we mentioned that once in medical school. And like, of course, all these things about how the United States spends double the amount of money um, on health care as many other peer countries, but we don't we don't get the same uh, benefit from that and, and where's that money going? And then um, I, I also uh, worked for a while at the county hospital in Minneapolis as a scribe um, in the emergency room. And so, 
you know, coming from a more comfortable background in that sense, I think that those experiences were kind of radicalizing for me and um, seeing the, the ways that these kind of like systems of illness and death play out um, in the lives of our patients was just very personally challenging um, and also has made me reflect a lot upon my background and my privilege and being somebody who hasn't had to, you know, move three countries like you, Jonas, to, um, <laughs> yeah, to, to get a medical education, to, to get a job, to like do the work. Um, I feel, I feel that privilege a lot. And so a lot of my, um, you know, are obviously like this circumstances of our birth are totally random. Um, but then the question for me has been like, what do we do with that? And like, as somebody, as I've reflected upon my past, like, what do I do with my education, with my privileges, with my skills, with the things that, with my strengths and weaknesses, of course. Um, and like, how do we think about um, our responsibility in the world and our responsibility to love our neighbors, you know, as we, we love ourselves um, and all, all these kinds of questions. I think that that's something that I continue to struggle with. Um, but I've, I've just been so thankful to be kind of taken up into the social medicine world with folks like yourselves and many, many others, um, teachers who we've had on this podcast and, and other folks in this fight, because it, it's really felt like a community for me where um, we are all putting our shoulder to the same task. I, uh, I want to add something. When, when you say like you feel privileged, Brendan, I also feel myself really very privileged also mm-hmm. um, privileged compared to the people that I grew up with mm-hmm. um, uh, even though after the earthquake I moved to Mexico but some people stay in Haiti you see what I mean uh, I came here to America and I had a chance to study a master in public health mm-hmm. and now I'm at Boston Medical Center so some all I, I also become privileged into the system and I'm asking myself the same question or I can use the privilege uh, that I'm gaining to create a difference uh, because I'm in this country um, and, and I meet people who are from the same background with me, who are undocumented and and they treat me different, you see what I mean? And we're the same human being and, and often those people work harder than I do, you see what I mean? So mm-hmm. I am privileged too. The reason I say that is because when we when we ask, question our privilege often and often, something that I feel sometimes is guilt, you see what I mean? Sometimes I feel like uh, if I don't do, if I don't give back, I feel mm-hmm. guilty. If I don't do this, I feel guilty. So I always ask myself, how can I try to give not in the sense of covering my guilt? You see mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, so we have to say, yes, we are privileged, but we shouldn't go to the other opposite of it and feel mm-hmm. so guilty that for example you're guilty for being white or you're guilty for being a male you're guilty you sort of mean like Mm -hmm. because if you keep looking for guilt you will find and Mm -hmm. there are so many things that you and i we didn't choose i didn't choose to be born in haiti we didn't choose to be born in Mm -hmm. america you sort of mean but i can use that to create change you can use that to create change yeah no i i appreciate that i think i i agree that i feel like guilt is a fairly unproductive emotion (laughs) Uh, to feel, but yeah, in like, how can we use those realizations to um, 
to, yeah, how can we use those realizations to like transform the world and turn that into a more productive emotion, like solidarity um, or action? And, and I love what you say too about kind of the many ways that in which each of us are privileged or not. Um, and, and I think it's maybe like a nuanced point, but for a lot of people kind of coming from the background that I did, like there's also a sense that um, like there's a, I don't know what the opposite of privilege is exactly, but there's like kind of a spiritual um, temptation to, to like pursue safety at all costs or to pursue success or status at all costs or something, which is like, I think a, a terrible thing. And, and, and I see um, if, if someone is only successful enough, then like you'll be okay in life or something like that. So I have uh, just a couple questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Jonas, something, some things that you said, let me ask, do you feel, um, do you ever feel alienated from the institutions that you're in, like kind of an imposter? Yes, I do. I do. I, uh, and, uh, man, <laughs> I do. I, uh, I do. I do because, and, and, and that's not a, a, that's not a, a, a new feeling for me. Now it's stronger. When I was a kid, I feel it. But I feel like as I move up, it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. For yeah, when I say it's not a new feeling for me, when I was a kid, my parents don't—they don't speak French at all, at all, at all. But school is in French, so my dad, for example, will never like every month there is parents' reunion. Parents has to come, parents meeting. My dad will never come to those reunions. Never, never, not one day in my life would my dad will come to those meetings. Because my dad didn't want any other parents to ask him a question in French, so he will not be able to answer. So they will always send a cousin who, who was in high school to go for us. So, so when I go to school and I see the other kids with their parents or their dad, I feel less. I ask myself what I'm doing here. But for me, school, because I was studying and I was doing good grade and people was appreciating me, those grades was helping me to um, stop the nose in my mind. Like, like I was telling myself, oh, if I can have a good GPA, I will feel great. I will feel good. You know that the like uh, academic success was like my a serotonin shot for me. Like, like kind of addiction. I could say that. You know what I mean? So I was always competing just to show how great I am. Like as a kid. You know what I mean? And that's how I end up winning scholarship to come to America the first time 11 years ago. So sometimes I do things when I was a kid or when I was young, it's just because I had that little conversation in my mind, you are not good enough. Um, so when I moved to Mexico, everybody was speaking Spanish and I was the unique black um, among 5,000 folks. I was asking myself what I'm doing here. And now I'm here in America. I'm in a position where I'm telling you the truth. Um, I'm in a hospital, I speak four languages. And I and I and I I don't use interpreter when I speak Spanish or Creole. So many people like looking at me, like surrounding me. But I often ask myself what I'm doing here because sometimes I can't enjoy what people enjoy. Um, uh, sometimes because my friend will say, "Oh, let's go out and do this," 
And I will go, I will not even know what to say because those things are not familiar to me. I didn't used to do them when I was a kid or I didn't do, used to have those kind of fun, you sort of mean? So I asked myself if I'm at home. So something that helped me a lot is I stay in touch with my family and I stay in touch with some old friends. Um, I just returned from New Jersey. I, there, was, there was no reason for me to go to New Jersey, but I just go and I stay at a friend who know my struggle when I was broke, when I was having a lot of difficulties and challenges. So just by staying with that friend, I feel like I'm reconnecting with myself. So I'm, I, I just want to share that um, I experience the imposter syndrome. I have all my life and still do, no matter how successful, quote unquote, yeah. I've been. Why? Yeah. Okay, so, the, you know, you've attributed in part to your country, but mostly to your class background. Yes, I like that. And that's what I attribute it to. And there's actually, I just want to mention, some very important research on this that should be better known in social medicine, in my opinion, which is what happens to people from low-income and working-class backgrounds who enter academia or the professions. And there are actually several books about it. The, the, one of them that I've been the most influenced by is called Strangers in Paradise, which is actually a, a study of like 25, in-depth study, 25 um, academics from working-class backgrounds, from different ethnic-racial backgrounds, but sharing a low-class background. And, and the feeling of, of being an imposter, feeling fundamentally alienated and lonely, um, and that if, if people found out what I'm really like, it would really be a terrible thing. This is something that is very rarely studied, like what actually is the mobility into medicine, let's say, from working class families? Do you know of any studies about that? Uh, no. <laughs> and the reason you don't is because it's not studied. It's studied, you know, there's an article that comes out literally every 25 years or so, and the and the and when they do, they always come up with the same percentage among medical students, which is twelve percent every generation. And so, I just wanted to you know kind of reinforce this. My feeling is that one of the main challenges is actually to expand access into this type of health work. And one of the key issues is, how do you do that, given the deprivations that we have by virtue of how we're born? Okay. So the social determination that we talk about in, in health outcomes doesn't just affect other people, you know, patients, etc. It actually affects a substantial but small proportion of us, in, you know, in, in, the, in the health professions. So I just wanted to mention that. That has actually been something that's been really 
critical for me to try to understand just because uh, I've had so much trouble with kind of mental health survival in, in a variety of situations that were fundamentally alienating in terms of academic medicine. I've even been fired you know, from an academic job because of my politics in the medical school actually got censored because of it. And why? Because I was teaching about this stuff. So anyway, I, I, I just wanted to share that. And I had actually had a question for you too, Brendan. So what's the deal about divinity school? Oh, and, man. And, liber and liberation theology. Yeah, that's, that's a good question with a long answer. Um, I think... I think it kind of goes back, there's a couple of roots, but it goes back to a sense um, that I did have, well, that sense of discontent that I had in medical school about, especially during my first two years, the just sense of like, what are we doing here? We're not talking about the things that actually matter. We're, n we're not talking about what it means to die and like be with somebody as they die. We're not talking about, you know, the larger questions of justice at all we're just like learning how the kidney works and of course i want to learn how the kidney works i want to be the best doctor that i can be um and i i believe that i owe that to my patients and like i want those skills to but but there's there's like the larger framework that was just missing um and so for me that really sent me on this quest of like what is kind of the moral heart of medicine like what should we be doing and this kind of connects also with um, some changes that were going on in my own kind of personal and spiritual life as well, um, which you end up talking about when you go to divinity school. But, you know, I grew up in the church. Um, I grew up in kind of an evangelical suburban congregation. And though there were many people in that setting who were like wonderful people, um, I kind of like left any faith background towards the end of high school and into college, it just felt very unconnected from uh, my life um, or like any other problems in the world. And, and I got a chance to um, take a class in college about liberation theology. And like, it didn't click at the time at all. You know, I kind of just got through it as one of my general education courses. But I think like towards, towards the end of college, I, I just started to have um, I guess a lot of spiritual, personal changes and like reconnecting with that side of myself and kind of the, the um, aspect of the universe that people end up using religious language for. And like I, I felt a reason to go back to church and I felt a reason to um, be engaging with like the long, you know, tradition of like asking meaningful questions about like why we're here and what we're doing and that experiential element of like doing that with other people. Um, and I've, I've found so much personal meaning there and, you know, a lot of it too. Um, and it, it's not just the Christian church too. I spent, I've spent some time in different Buddhist communities and so on, which I've appreciated a lot, but um, I keep coming back to the idea that Jesus talks about of like, you know, loving God, loving your neighbor, and loving yourself. And the call of the prophets 
to um, like bring in a world of justice and love and that the the ways that things are set up are not the way that uh, things have to be and they're not the dream that God has for the world and that um, and, and a lot of it too is like kind of relearning the language that I was given when I was young but like in a new framework so you know the classic uh, the classic verse of like the wages of sin is death you know um, in a way it's like one can interpret that as like the payment for sin is death or like the outcome of sin is death and what is sin but just a sense of disconnect from like flourishing and shalom or salam and so like to the extent that we're uh personally and part of systems that are broken um and not systems of justice and love like those lead to death and those lead to personal death that leads to death of people um that leads to kind of a spiritual internal death and so just like grappling with those questions, how do those questions relate to medicine and like what we're trying to do with other people? And, and I really just found this language of liberation theology to really be um, very, very key and influential for me. There's a book called In the Company of the Poor that's written by Gustavo Gutierrez and Paul Farmer. Uh, Gustavo Gutierrez is a Peruvian priest who was one of the key figures of liberation theology which came out of Latin America in the 60s, and then has had American offshoots and Korean offshoots as well. But um, And then Paul Farmer, of course, big social medicine physician and anthropologist, started Partners in Health. Uh, but, but they really, that book, I think, was very transformative for me. And kind of focusing on this idea of accompaniment, of walking with patients, like of, of, of working towards creating uh, ways of life and communities that work towards life and away from death. And, and that requires kind of like a conversion moment of these larger systems. And it kind of requires like a conversion moment in our own minds and hearts, like towards wanting life instead of wanting death. And um, um, so, so I think that this kind of like the spiritual nexus of all these things and the changes that I was undergoing and the connections between uh, liberation theology and um, social medicine, which I, I happened upon. I mean, I, I didn't expect that connection, but then when I found it, it just was like, oh, it makes so much sense. Like, of course, you know, and, and that really just uh, tied these things together for me. And it really does feel like the, the moral heart for me of medicine that I've discovered um, after you know, working through, uh, working through like my own background and like how, how have I been a part of all these systems as well? But it just kind of comes down to this idea of accompaniment and being with the suffering other and like working against the systems that's causing them to suffer, even as we realize that we all will be suffering and dying. And so there's this sense of like solidarity with the other person, um, with the patient, and that with with our family members and loved ones, with the enemy, with the stranger, and like just being together, breaking bread together, working towards a world of justice and love, and like I I just see that medicine like medicine is one small way of participating in that, and people found many ways of participating in that, of course, um, but that's that's kind of like where I keep landing on these ideas of solidarity and accompaniment as kind of the moral heartbeat of medicine. Um, 
Well, I appreciate your sharing that, really. Uh, the um, So um, I guess I, I just want to make some brief responses to that. And this is the first time I've ever said this in a social medicine context, which is that um, had I not developed a Buddhist-oriented meditational practice decades ago, mm. I don't think I'd have made it. So the spiritual dimension of what we're doing is actually really key. Hmm. And uh, and what happened to me is actually I um, grew up in a family of atheists, actually. Um, Traft was, you know, I, my grandfather was a, was a role model, actually was a draft resistor mm-hmm. to the Tsar's army. So he came wow. from... Lithuania to Wadsworth, Ohio, and started a little farm in 1903. And um, for me, as a medical student during the Vietnam War, from Boston, we were actually organizing material aid for the Viet Cong. And there was uh, like a caravan that went back and forth between Boston and Montreal to deliver supplies to Madame Bin, who was a Viet Cong representative to the Paris Peace Talks, who was based in Montreal at that time. At, through that process, I actually started to follow Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a mm-hmm. very well-known, as you probably know, Vietnamese Buddhist priest. And so I've been meditating ever since. I have a number of problems with Buddhism, though, and they center on the issue of justice. Mm. So one of my hopes for my next life is actually to try to unify Buddhism and Marxism, Hmm. which which actually I'm not the only one. But um, I'm saying that partly because the spiritual dimension of what we do in terms of revolutionary transformation and and the spiritual dimension to deal with some of the things you were talking about, Jonas, is actually really key. Now, mm-hmm. about liberation theology and social medicine, so let me just mention this for a moment. So, in your studies, did you come across Camilo Torres? I have heard the name, but I have not read anything. Okay. But, uh... So... Missing in the in the first couple, uh, you know, at least the two and a half that I sessions that I listened to so far, you know, was the C word. So you know what the C word is, right? No, tell us. Capitalism. 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 So, for instance, Michael and Michelle. Uh, who have become among the people I respect most in the world and created tremendous hope in my life, did not say the word, even though, in the interviews, even though the purpose of the campaign against racism as part of the social medicine consortium is to overthrow racial capitalism. So isn't that interesting? And this gets back into fear and safety and the various things that you were mentioning. What motivates us not to 
put our lips around truthful words, which is racial capitalism is a big problem. In fact, it's the problem. And without its transformation, we're not going to achieve our goals in social medicine or any other struggle that we have to achieve social justice in this world. Hmm. That's a pretty direct statement. I feel that one of the most important tasks that we have as intellectuals, as professionals now, is to stop fearing the expression of that word and to actually figure out how to move beyond capitalism. So, getting back to Camilo Torres. Camilo Torres was a Colombian priest, Catholic priest. And he, like Che Guevara, one of our models in social medicine, Dr. Ernesto Guevara, the great Argentinian doctor, he became the leader of the Cuban Revolution, decided to pick up a gun and drop the, in, in Che's situation, to leave behind the doctor's bag because he felt, and he argued very persuasively to medical students after the Cuban Revolution, that he could accomplish more through revolutionary transformation of a society than he could by trying to deal one-to-one with individual patients. Camilo Torres basically left the priesthood, took up arms, and is still recognized as one of the most important leaders of liberation theology. So in Latin America, there were two sources well, three sources, in my opinion, for social medicine. One was indigenous sources, and we can come back to that if you want to. It's, it's very, very important. Second was um, um, Marxism, and the third was liberation theology. And uh, let me just mention that particularly in Brazil, the flowering of what is called not social medicine, but collective health, which is intertwined with social medicine in Latin America. But the Brazilians decided long ago to emphasize the collectivity as the basis of action and to emphasize health rather than medicine. And the source of much of that was actually liberation theology as affected by Marxism. And one of the greatest liberation theologians, Fray Beto in Brazil, was actually the key person um, in that. You know, um, this history, I think, you know, is very important. And Fray Beto, actually, getting back to the importance of spirituality in social medicine and in social justice, actually interviewed Fidel Castro in a book that I highly recommend called On Religion. So hmm. the whole book is interviews by a liberation theologian, Catholic priest from Brazil of, of Fidel Castro. And Fidel Castro says you know, with amazing clarity and beauty 
that the big problem with Marxism has been the lack of a spiritual center. And so what he was saying is, in order to move ahead in a revolutionary society, a spiritual grounding, including a religious grounding for some people, was actually extremely important. So, you know, based on your very poignant uh, answers to my interviews, you guys, uh, I just wanted to bring out that you're, you know, in my opinion, definitely on the right track. So, uh, congratulations. We can stop here. I don't know that I have a lot more to say. This is Social Medicine On Air, co-hosted by Brendan Johnson and Jonas Atlas. Produced by Brendan Johnson and myself, Raghav Goyal. Intro music credits to Savage on YouTube and outro and incidental music to Smith the Mister. And a huge thanks to Clara Brand for our logo and visual work. You can find her on Instagram at underscore off underscore brand underscore. If you would like to share your story on the podcast or have any questions at all, please reach out to us at socialmedicineonair at gmail.com or at Twitter at socialmedonair. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe, join our social media, and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to us. Thank you so much for listening.